I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and I'm so delighted to be joined today by Malcolm Harris, who I feel like I've known online for a long time, and now I get to talk to him sort of in person. <laughs> He's a freelance writer and the author of Kids These Days, The Making of Millennials, and Shit is Fucked Up and Bullshit, History Since the End of History. He was born in Santa Cruz, California, and graduated from the University of Maryland, and his new book, is called Palo Alto, A History of California, Capitalism, and the World. Welcome, Malcolm. Thank you so much for having me, Maris. So it's a small little book, <laughs> <laughs> not too ambitious. I guess I want to start with talking about how Palo Alto these days is synonymous with Silicon Valley and the tech industry, but as you point out over and over again in the book, there was so much history that led us up to this point. I mean, starting with the fact that these companies are on stolen land. Yeah, I think that's really where you have to start the story and definitely where I started the story. And so far, histories of Silicon Valley, if they allude to this period, it's in a like sort of disconnected way, I think, where that was something that happened back then. And then this is something that happened later. And as a kid who grew up in California, that's definitely how they teach the history is like, there's the pre-Anglo period, and then there's the Anglo period, and that these are disconnected phenomena, and that's just not the case. Yeah, the idea that everything is so connected really hit home when you talked about efficiency, which I think is this really tech bro thing to talk about. But back in the day in Palo Alto, there was horse breeding and panning for gold that was meant to be done with efficiency. And then the worst example of this that I could, that you talk about in the book is, of course, the efficiency 
of the nuclear bombs. Yeah, well, in California, in its Anglo-American period, is really builds on this efficiency. And Palo Alto, in specific, in particular, is like the town that efficiency built, starting with this horse stock farm, where Leland Stanford and his crew that he employs really try to reinvent the horse. Right? This is the first like. Palo Alto disruption. He has this plan <laughs> where he's going to make every horse in America $100 more valuable through his like horse breeding program. And he has some like crazy successes in terms of transforming the horse market, but obviously does not end up improving the value of every American horse by $100 in the way that he imagined. And this is for me sort of the like, formula for what we come to understand is Silicon Valley. And it's called the Palo Alto system. Yes. Say more about the Palo Alto system. Because when I think about what you spend this whole book talking about, I think about all of the startups I've worked for where we are expected to have quick growth year over year until forever. And that's the only definition of success. Yeah. From the beginning, this Palo Alto system was really about optimizing a sense of potential. So the problem they were dealing with looking at selling trotting horses or really trotting horse semen, which is how you make new trotting horses. And that's sure. the like, easier thing to sell than the horses themselves, the genetic material or the intellectual property, really. So already <laughs> we're talking about Silicon Valley, right? But their plan, the problem was that it takes too long to figure out if a horse has, you know, winning because you got to wait till they get older and then you got to wait till they have kids and then you got to wait till the kids get older because in general at horse racing at the time colts weren't really tested wait till the horse was a couple years old to really start like training them to race but the palo alto system involved training them to race basically as fast as possible as young as possible so they could really get an optimized sense of potential and so this was really great for sales it didn't necessarily correlate, again, with horse value in the way that they imagined. <laughs> this is a particular like genetic ideology about like the quality of the horse is always implicit in the horse itself, in its genes, and you're just expressing it, by, which is, again, very convenient for your sales pitch if what you're selling is the genetic material rather than the training, which is hard to reproduce off-site. But that's what they really invested in was this training center. And that's the beginning of Palo Alto as well as the Palo Alto system. Yeah, and speaking of seed, I was, I hadn't put it together that Palo Alto seems like it was a center for eugenic thought in the 19th century, 20th century. Absolutely, so the founding president of the university is this guy, David Starr Jordan, comes out of the University of Indiana, and he's a like hardcore leading eugenicist. In fact, he really like comes up with his own science that he calls bionomics, which is the like application of economics to like fundamental life processes, more or less. And it's still sort of the, the ideology of Silicon Valley, I think, is this bionomic idea of like genetic destiny and hierarchy and difference. And so he's a very hardcore eugenicist and he gets the, after the untimely death of Jane Lathrop Stanford that he may or may not have been personally involved in. Um, a little true crime in this book. <laughs> right, true crime in there too. He gets real control over the university and its direction and pursues not just eugenics, but the strategic implications of eugenics for the university 
which means turning the school itself into a eugenics program where he's trying to redirect graduates into the like highest value positions in society and like selecting based on height and perceived genetic value for the university. And Stanford really does seem to be at the center of the book in general. And I don't think I quite understood how much influence the university itself has. Yeah, well, people sometimes call it Stanford, California in earnest, not even as a like, you know, commentary <laughs> to think that's the name of the place because it really is founded by the Stanfords as a municipal or sub-municipal home for the Stanford family's projects. So yeah, it's not just central, but the foundation for what then grows on top of it in so many ways. Yeah. Yeah. Another element to the book that I hadn't realized was so important was I was in a production of Annie when I was a kid. We sang our song about Herbert Hoover and how he sucks. And I didn't even know that was just the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about Herbert Hoover in Palo Alto. Yeah, when I started this project, I mean, I knew Hoover was going to be a character, but I really didn't have a sense of the role he played in the 20th century because he's, he's part of the first class at Stanford, which itself is pretty interesting, right? So and I like to think of him as Leland Stanford Jr., even though the actual Leland Stanford Jr. died. Herbert Hoover then sort of inherits the mantle of the Stanfords and goes on from graduation. He's trained in being a mineral surveyor, uh, mining, which at the time is like big money. This is a front of finance is mining securities. And so he's going around the world and he has this sort of Forrest Gump-like existence where he's, you know, in China for the Boxer Rebellion and he like just <laughs> missed the Bolshevik Revolution. And he's like, going around the world to all these places, exploiting the natural resources, helping European colonial powers mostly access uh, the mineral resources of their concessions or colonial territories. And in so becomes very rich in his uh, like presence of Americanness abroad during the period of the beginning of the 20th century. And really is, it plays this influential role in a way that we might think of as like a tech startup guy. And he's shedded as sort of a tech startup guy tech finance startup guy, which is what he was. It was technology, mining engineering that he studied at Stanford. And so he's more than anyone, I think, the prototype, even if we don't realize it now at all, for the Stanford man. And I didn't realize his influence was so wide ranging, even like when you talk about Ronald Reagan, that he was a Hooverite. Well, that he, I mean, Ronald Reagan isn't even Ronald Reagan, right? So it's the like the Ronald Reagan cabinet is made sure. up of all these like Hoover people and people like George Schultz. And so it's the deep infrastructure of conservatism in America that goes underground with Hoover sort of after he's defeated by Roosevelt and can't really find its way to the surface until Reagan, but reemerges with Reagan. And it's not just, you know, Hoover, but it's the Hoover Institution, both literally yeah. the Hoover Institution at Stanford, which is this giant tower at Stanford. It's the largest building in Palo And then the Hoover Institution, you know, like lowercase, like he, he really cultivated a group of friends and associates, really associates is the right term, through this period into like the late 20th century. And they were incredibly influential and the children have been influential. And they maintained like 
all sorts of power in ways that we don't even connect. So I was surprised at just how deep Hoover went. I had to end up spending a lot more time on him than I originally planned. Makes sense to me. I mean, and there's been a lot of discourse lately about Nepo babies, but your whole book is a testament to the power of being born into the right family. Well, and even the right circumstances, because that's mm-hmm. that we see this transition. And I see that with Hoover, that it goes from being a like handed down directly from your parents to Hoover, who's an orphan. And so he's able to inherit the like aristocratic mantle of the Stanfords in this non-direct way that these bourgeois institutions that are being created at the time allow for, right? They allow for the like class privilege and class position to be transferred, not just through family lines, but among a class that's being defined through their like self-activity, you know, Hoover gets picked because he's the manager for the football team and he raises the most money and he's really good at what he does. He's like a good manager guy. And you're so good in the book about explaining why what one particular person does doesn't really influence the world the way we think. It's the forces behind him. And Hoover seems like a really good example of that. Yeah, just because he's this collection of so many different forces at one time. And he is, you know, he's an interesting figure personally, too. And he, unlike someone like Stanford, does seem to have like, you know, talents. Stanford was kind of a stuffed shirt who really was at the right time, right place with the right set of brothers. But Hoover, you know, he's a real go-getter. He's like the guy the time needs. But the system is able to go out and find these people. And if it wasn't him, they would have found somebody else. And if it wasn't that somebody else, they would have found a third guy. And I think that's what's key to understand is that these are forces animating the individuals rather than the other way around so much. And that's so helpful to think of in terms of the people we call founders now. Some of them are geniuses or whatever, but... Much less common than it used to be these days in terms of having genius founders. Because again, it's the same college <laughs> of system where you're optimizing for visible potential, right? So you get someone like Elizabeth Holmes, who's really good at looking like a good founder, right? She got everyone bought in on the mm-hmm. brand and the like the vibe of her as this genius. Is she a genius? No, she's not a genius. <laughs> like she was, you know a Stanford freshman without any like particular form of specialized knowledge, you know? (laughs) Who was really good at charming investors. Just, wow. And so the other side of this, of course, is that through the course of the hundreds of years you cover in this book, turns out that workers have kind of almost always universally been treated poorly. It is a history of capitalism, after all. (laughs) I wonder, there are so many elements to it, including like the Chinese immigrants who built the railroads. And I won't even go into all of it, but I wonder if you could talk a little bit about why organizing wasn't happening or wasn't popular or was so hard, is so hard. Yeah, there have been a few reasons over California's history. And it's sort of, you can also look at it the other way around, right? Like California has become California because organizing has been hard, right? And it's become an appealing place to invest capital from all over the world and has been for this whole period because not just as important as the technology that's developed there, 
are the work relations and the technology of labor management that have also come out of the space. So like way before even gig work, you've got the Bay Area as the center of temp work, right? Which is a different but similar kind of phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Still no health insurance. <laughs> <clears throat> right. Well, and before that, you've got it as a center of immigrant labor from all over the world. And so you there are a couple then strategies that Cap has found really useful in California. And California has been a lab before kind of labor control strategies. One of them is hitting people over the head with sticks. So in the 30s, where you got a lot of like communist labor organizing in fields, and they seem to be doing pretty well as the canneries, you see growers forming basically fascist militias, take their axe handles and go beat people in the field and shoot and kill strikers and are able to enforce a class dictatorship in California. And so they've Capitalists have been unshackled in California to a degree that is kind of unprecedented in the country and have used that to great end in the Bay Area and to secure themselves a disproportionate share of the global. They've also used racialization. So California has been a a real lab of racialization as a way to split people and to split the working class in particular. And so you see not just immigration, but all sorts of laws and classifications used to separate immigrants or certain groups of immigrants or certain minorities or, you know, across any number of different axes, separate the working class into chunks to make it more manageable. And and you talk so much about the housing market in that regard and who can settle down in Palo Alto and where? Yeah, it's important to think about settlement as a recent an ongoing process within California. So I talk about myself as a the grandson of settlers and I'm talking about the 60s, you know, and when they're, you know, bulldozing orchards to build housing developments, that's settlement. That's within a hundred years of, you know, the established somewhere like Palo Alto, right? And so if you think about in the East Coast in terms of the same timeline, you're talking about, you know, the 1600s equivalent, like the 1960s are the equivalent of the 1700s for the West Coast in terms of how far away they are from settlement by Anglo-Americans. So I think it's important to think of settlement as an ongoing characterizing factor of California, period, right? In the ways that uh, America and white people have used settlement as a process in order to manage labor relations and the production of capital as well. Of course. And then the flip side, of course, is that once outsourcing became a real thing, they were able to exploit people all over the globe. Yeah. And at the same time, right. And so you see in starting in the sixties, like very early when the microchip or the chip transistor silicon industry starts in Silicon Valley, that these foundries are getting exported to East Asia, but also to Mexico and other places immediately. Like as soon as they come up with the technology, again, the technologies they're also coming up with are labor relations management technologies. And so these, at the same time, you're seeing, if you go through the history, labor uprisings in the chip industry, in these like nascent silicon foundries, and then the outsourcing of those jobs as a strategy for managing those uprisings. And it's a very effective one. 
And and you take good care to remind us how hazardous the job of actually building these chips are and how much regulation we should or then have for the workers who are doing these jobs. Yeah, we don't think of the Bay Area as like a toxic wasteland, but if you look at where how many Superfund sites are in the Bay Area as a result of this industry that, again, has mostly been now moved away from this area because rich people like living over there and don't want the water to be poisonous to their children, which is, you know, still is. So one of it's funny because Palo Alto has all these like classic haunting narratives. It's like it's on a native burial ground. The swamp has been polluted. The water has been polluted with all the products of the main industry. So look out for swamp monsters, silicon chip <laughs> swamp monsters. And then, of course, when you do get into the kind of time period of the golden age, I don't know if that's right to say, of Silicon Valley, we're learning about John Trey Gates. I like that you call him Trey. <laughs> Bill Gates the third. Bill Gates the third. Just like a nice reminder that he didn't start from scratch. <laughs> no, although to be fair, it was the his mom's family, the Maxwells, that had the bigger money than the Gates side. And it was interesting to me how you frame them as people who are really talented at managing labor, maybe more than they were actual idea men. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely the case with Steve Jobs gets put forward as this icon of Silicon Valley all the time, but he wasn't the tech guy. He wasn't the coder. He wasn't the programmer. He wasn't the guy doing the circuit. That was Wozniak. What he was really good at was making deals and making people do things faster and sometimes better than they thought they would otherwise be able to do. And that sounds really inspiring. Like, like wow, I want someone who can make me do things that I think I couldn't do. And there wasn't that aspect to it. At the same time, the way he mostly did that was by like manipulating and bullying people. And if you ask around the Bay Area about Steve Jobs from uh, people who like were in the scene and knew what kind of person he was, you get a very different story than sort of the myth of Steve Jobs that we get now, both in terms of like him personally, but also like, you know, politically, historically. And there, there is this great tradition of squeezing productivity, trying to get the most work out of individual workers that you can. And that is something that allows you to succeed, even if, you know, it turns out that Amazon factory workers are pissing in jars because you don't have time to go to the bathroom. Yeah, I mean, that is efficiency, right? Like, mm -hmm. that's a, and we think of efficiency as just a, like, technological development, that efficiency, the drive for efficiency is good because it makes you develop new technologies that require less labor. And that pushes us all towards an, an easier future. But at a certain point, it becomes easier to find new profits by just attacking the labor share, both in terms of the money, but also in terms of the conditions that labor is able to extract from you. And so we're able to hold a couple ideas in our head at the same time where like, oh, Amazon workers have it really great. They get all these perks, et cetera, et cetera. And then we also read these articles about people like weeping at their desks and peeing into bottles and like being emotionally destroyed because they're worked so hard. And yeah, we, we all like to talk about burnout, but <laughs> that seems like an extreme kind. 
Yeah, but it's well, there. It's a tool. It's on purpose, right? It's a. It's not a like coincidence. Mm-hmm. I love how in the final chapter of the book you talk about when the story gets stupid, and it does seem like in the past twenty years or so, venture capitalists have really been throwing money at dummies. <laughs> and you talk about how there was people are saying like this is the Airbnb of this product. And, Mm -hmm. you know, in my life, I've had a lot of people pitching the Netflix for books, which of course is the library. How did we get to that point specifically? Well, it is this, you know, the Palo Alto system taken to absurdity, right? It's that Mm -hmm. once you've got an economy that's being driven by the need to find sinks for vast accumulated piles of capital, you're no longer looking for like the most stable, promising business necessarily. You need to find something that can absorb billions of dollars very quickly right now and that can uh, show that promise, right? Because if I say, oh, I want to start a bookstore, I think that there's a really good opportunity to like sell some books. I can't absorb $100 million. Like I can, there's nothing I can do with that, right? Like I just have to give it back to you, investor. Like that's not how much it costs. But if I say, I'm going to revolutionize book reading for the entire world and I'm going to just spend millions on millions and millions on something that's supposed to lead to that happening, that at least is something that they can bet millions of dollars on, right? Like a bookstore doesn't help me if I have to find somewhere to put $100 million. Whereas this plan for book flicks might not be a very good idea at all. It might be the worst idea in the world. But at least it can take my hundred million dollars, and like <laughs> if it's one out of twenty of my bets, then I just has to show a you know one in fifteen chance of doing great. Then I'm set, and so that sort of logic has dominated venture capital, and crypto is really the like taking it to the nth degree where it's just straight up a pyramid scheme, and yet you have venerable venture capital firms just like going all in on. A thing where there's just no there. And for those of us who thought critically about it, it was very clear the whole time that there was no there there. Which, which of course, brings me to the rise of Peter Thiel, which has a certain poignance today as we learned that Gawker 2.0 shutting down. I would love to talk a little bit about the pros in this book because you explain a lot of historical details and economic concepts and yet there are jokes there are literary illusions tell me a little bit about the process of actually writing the book and putting this book together oh it was a lot of fun uh in some ways (laughs) i mean so i basically like the real intensive work on it elapsed with the first years of covid and so i was living alone working full-time on this project starting March, 2020. And that was a pretty, pretty crazy time to have something you could throw yourself fully into. And so I would, you know, I would cook, I would clean, I'd take care of my like basic things. And then I would just do this book basically. And so I would take a stack of 10 books to the park and sit there all day, just reading books. And I have a very complicated notation system because I was working with a pretty large outline. And so I had to like, be able to access the right notes at the right place 
easily. And so I developed this notation system sort of inspired by American Sign Language, which I'd started taking at the same time, where like, do I, is this a useful thing? <laughs> I feel like I'm getting I, into the I'm fascinated. I want to hear. So in ASL, if you want to talk about your schedule for the month, you hold up four fingers horizontally like this because it looks like the four weeks of the month. Your fingers look like the four weeks of the month. So if you want to talk about the third week of the month, you point towards your third finger and that's the third week of the month. And so I've got five sections in the book. And so I use the, like I split books into five horizontal sections for my notes. So if it was a note that I was going to use, plan to use in the first section, because those are like time delineated. So I know basically which section I'm going to use it in. So if it's up to 1900, it's in the first section. So if I had a note for the first section, I would put the little flag for that note in the top fifth of the book so that when I was assembling my notes for the, that section, and then they would be color coded based on the chapter within the section. And so I've got like, you know, many dozens of books that are all with all these flags, all in like, you know, broken down in these different ways, but so I could separate which things I needed for other things and reference them pretty easily. So it's kind of low tech, but it was a lot of fun. I love that. These. And you clearly, aside from doing technical research, you watched a lot of films and read a lot of novels. And tell me about integrating that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a, so I'm not an academic. I don't have a like disciplinary training. And so when I'm writing about this stuff, I'm looking for anything that's going to get me a fuller, more truthful picture, as well as different things that my readers are going to connect with. And then different media also fill really different roles in terms of filling in history. So like poetry is one of those things where you can pretty much find working class poetry from any group of people anywhere in like recorded history. That if you want to find commentary about like living in East Palo Alto from a kid who was living there in the 90s, you can find a like poem where they're expressing that. If you want to talk about worker suicide in iPhone factories, you can find poetry that's talking about that. If you want to talk about the destruction of the old left and the like breakup of black socialism in the forties, like you can find amazing poetry about that in particular. So like methodologically it was really important for me to like look at these different media and novels are the same thing, right? Like the Chester Himes stuff that I'm getting out of that, like you can't find that kind of approach to the history anywhere else. Like that's a, it's a unique way of approaching it. And visual art matters to me. Like, I don't know, it reflects my interests, I suppose, as well, which are, I like to think kind of wide in terms of the kind of media I'm interested in. I love that. And so on that note, please recommend some books for us. Dan Berger's new book, State on Freedom, is awesome. And he's somewhere I cite throughout the book because of his work on California is, I think, really important. And his new one is set in Philadelphia, which is another place that's really important to me. So really excited about that. The new translation of the last Proust volume just came out. So that's what I've been reading. I mean, it's been... Obviously, it's been out for a while, but they've deployed it on this stupid American copyright schedule. But on the other hand, it's made it really exciting for me, who's been reading the series for the first time, to be like, ooh, I can't wait till the new Proust came out. And the new Proust just came out. So that's what I've been reading. I love that. So the book, again, is called Palo Alto. And if you couldn't tell from this 
conversation. It is expansive in the very best possible way. Malcolm Harris, thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.